Um, it appeared last year um, at the same time. And uh, it has a life, each pavilion has a life of four months, uh, a temporary life in this location. And then at the end of that period, the building is gifted to the city of Melbourne and finds a permanent home. Uh, Sean's building has been moved to the Hellenic Museum, the gardens behind the Hellenic Museum in William Street. So if you haven't seen it there, please go and have a look. And then this building, of course, is designed by ALA, um, Amanda Levite Architects from the UK. Thank you. Uh, very much for the invitation to come and talk to you here today, this beautiful day in this absolutely delightful pavilion. And what I want to talk about is uh, really just a, a very simple thing, and it came out of a lovely conversation that I had with Toby Whitfield about the nature of materials and what some people think, what some architects think in particular, about something called materiality which usually follows with something along the lines of honesty of materials. This was something Toby found a little confusing because in that mix is usually some reference to off-form concrete as being the epitome of honest material expression in architecture, by which we could never use any kind of artificial material. We would always... And of course, as we all know, concrete is one of the most highly constructed materials there are. So we had this sort of free-ranging conversations about what that might mean, what materiality might be, and what, uh, what the role of new materials in the architectural scene is. So this story will be a little story about unpicking a little bit that sort of self-righteous view of what materiality means. It will look at then some alternative ways of thinking about the role of materials and materiality in architecture. I want to talk about a poetics of architecture, about storytelling through materials, and to show you one or, one or two um, examples, and to end with uh, a proposition about the obligation of the architect to the poetics of new materials, which will bring us back to this, uh, this kind of subject here. So this is a story about poetics, storytelling, and the making meaningful uh, of the world through materials. There is a branch of neuroscience which talks about the wonderful capacity that human beings have to make sense of fragmented bits of information. We are absolutely brilliant at taking pieces of knowledge and filling in the gaps, constructing a story to make meaningful what we understand at that particular point in time. And I think that role of storytelling is absolutely critical in what we mean by materials and materiality in architecture. I want to start with, with this image, which is a very beautiful small cricket club in Ireland, Dublin. And we see here a use of materials. And the young architects who designed this very beautiful small building began their PhD at RMIT uh, with an invitation from us to reflect on what's important in your work. And they came back to us with this proposition, what's important in our work is honesty of materials and the honest use of materials. Uh, and of course, they come out of this fantastic Irish modernist tradition of uh, the Toomey O'Donnell practice, McGeary and Ian I, and so on. And they are really wonderful exponents of the use of materials. 
But I think there's a bit of a myth in the way that they're thinking about their own architecture. And in that conversation, and this is uh, Kean Deegan and Alice Casey, the two young practitioners who did this building, in another of their projects, a very beautiful little intervention, Alice looking quite shocked because I've just asked her, well, Alice, when you talk about honesty of expression in materials and you don't paint the plywood and you don't paint the concrete, but you do paint the steel, what's going on there? This caused her to... Uh, think again in terms of what she meant by honesty in the expression of materials. And if I go back, what we see is the off-form unpainted concrete, but it's at a certain level. And this level of the concrete in the building tells a small story about the flood level on the plane that the building's situated on. So here's another kind of role of the material telling part of a story about the nature of that place. So. I want to just think very quickly through a couple of different ways in which materials tell us stories in the way we arrange them. Uh, and the first one uh, I'll go to, I'll start this story with a, a very famous image. This is um, Carlo Scarpa Casto Vecchio. And here you see a very delicate arrangement of materials that are doing something really quite different to this kind of self-righteous representation of the material itself. It's telling stories about the layering and interventions of the building of a place over a very long period of time. And then you think of extraordinary buildings like the Wieskirk in, in uh, Bavaria, Germany, which is an almost totally artificial interior where every surface is an artificial recreation of another material. And yet the outcome is stunning in its architecture and it's a World Heritage listed place. So here we can begin to unpick and undo what we might mean by honesty in material. Is Wieskirk dishonest? So instead of that kind of debate about um, honesty or dishonesty, I think this idea of storytelling, and I think that's a, a very blurry image, so you'll have to use your imagination. This is a sheet of marble. What are the other stories that materials tell us? And if we look at something like a sheet of marble, what we see is veins and geological histories, the formation of a material through its making. And it connects us immediately to a much longer geological time. We feel when we see that surface somehow part of a much bigger story. And there's something in that that is helpful in making our lives meaningful. We can say the same thing about a timber grain. It tells us about the life of the tree, of the intersection of that tree with its environment and its ecologies. But that's not that's not the whole story with either of these two pieces of material. If you look at even the timber floorboards in this pavilion, you actually try and get one out of, of those out of a tree like that. It's not that easy. <laughs> so even these simple timber surfaces tell another story, which is our own technological intervention in the material itself. So even the pure sheet of marble cast on the wall is a technological intervention in its own right. It tells us something about our technologies as well as the geological life of its own formation. And it's a very particular slice of that material. Of course, the marble looks nothing like that when you dig it out of the ground as a rock, and the timber looks nothing like that when you cut it first out of a tree. So then we can tell another kind of story about materials, which is the mark making, the interventions in the material surface itself. And this is an image to remind me of another PhD candidate that we have who's an extraordinary character. He's a stonemason who makes graves. 
Uh, and having trained as a stonemason, when he sees an image like this, he immediately begins to tell you all kinds of stories about the making of these pieces of stone. First of all, he'll tell you whether the stonemason who made this piece of who made this was uh, right-handed or left-handed. He'll tell you how he stood in the quarry. And when he looks at the stone wall that's carved outside the opera house in Sydney Harbour, he says, look at this guy, he's lazy. He's a lazy mason. And what he means is there's one section of the wall where instead of the chipping being in straight lines like this, the chipping, the chipping is in curved lines like this. And it's because instead of chipping a line and then moving along a step and chipping another line, this particular mason chose to stand there and do this. So for him, this material surface opens up a whole lot of stories about our interactions. That kind of thing was picked up by local landscape architect Mark Jakes in the practice Oculus. When walking around the streets of Melbourne, he noticed that outside the pubs, uh, there was this phenomenon of where the beer barrels would drop from the trucks, they would take a small chip out of the bluestone paving. So we thought, okay, maybe we could do something with that, that we could take that phenomenon and tell a story in the way that you could begin to repave different bits of Melbourne. So another story being recast. This is the work of an extraordinary um, Israeli architect whose whole work is... Uh, struggling with the problem of what is home uh, in her uh, condition. And she begins to work with, um, usually with earth. So in this case, she cuts a hole in a small pavilion and begins to play with the ground. And her work is a social work, so she invites others to come in. And her, her belief is that in when others, when the community engages together in putting their hands in the earth and reforming it, something happens. There is a making meaningful of the place. And here we begin to get to another kinds of, kind of possibility of storytelling in materials. And it's one that Gottfried Semper used to explain that materials carry with them a meaning that comes from the nature of their own manufacture. When we're talking about bricks, and earth materials, we're talking about digging into the ground and of reforming it. When we're talking, and of course he ends with his proposition that weaving is perhaps the most basic architectural act, and it comes from the loom and the association of the material with the activity of weaving undertaken on the loom in the hearth, in the cottage, uh, in our home. So materials, he argued, carry with them that kind of association. Materials like glass carry with it the memory of the fire that made them. So this is another kind of storytelling that materials uh, are engaged with. Another kind of material exploration in the history of architecture, and this one is an image of the inside of the Chapel of Charlemagne in Arken. And I remember in this image John Summerson's story in the book Heavenly Mansions where he tells about the aerial ambition of the Gothic. So he turns on its head that rationale of Gothic architecture being all about structural extremism and he puts it into an atmospheric ambition and says this is what drove that architecture, a desire for 
an aerial expression in the space. And I think partly that's what we're seeing in pavilions like this or in works by Zumpfle, for example, where there's some idea of an atmospheric outcome from a particular material combination which we're reaching for and stretching to find. And great architecture pushes those boundaries. And we've seen it, oh, I'm changing the slides on there, which you can't see. We've seen it through the development of all kinds of new materials, cast iron, the use of glass in architecture, the introduction of reinforced concrete. And what we see there is a architects grappling with how to engage with these materials in ways that they can tell us stories of all kinds about the places that they're in, about their making, and so on. So to end, I want to talk, this is an outrageous project by uh, one of my RMIT colleagues, Gwilym Yarn, and his assistant, James Patsy. And when you look at this image, you could think, well, this is just mad Melbourne Baroque gone completely off the rails. But this is a deeply uh, sensitive material investigation. And what these guys are playing with here are the possibility of using new materials and new technologies to make architecture. And in particular, in this project, they're playing with the possibility of taking recycled plastic granules and using a robot uh, and a heat, heat injector gun on the, on the actuator on the end to create accumulated dobs and building an architecture out of a material that we're not yet really using in architecture. And I wanted to use this to point at an obligation that architecture has to the ugly. And I'm using that word in the way that Leon Van Skyks used it, that Mark Cousins used it, and that we're familiar with. That when we begin to play with new things, we do end up in this realm of the ugly because they've not yet become part of our shared conversation. But there is an obligation on architects and on designers to push the limits, to keep trying to find what kinds of expression there might be in new materials as well as the ones that we know extremely well. And out of these experimentations will come all kinds of new wonderful stories, both narrative but also atmospheric. Uh, and that is where what I would call the poetics of materials in architecture comes from. And that is the end of that uh, very small presentation that I hope to make. But where I wish to point at um, the role that materials have to play uh, in architecture and the architect's obligation to work with them in the making meaningful of the spaces that we occupy. In that story, of course, the technology and the making of these materials is incredibly important. So my next task is to introduce to you Toby Wilford from Moldcam, who is responsible for, uh, he's one of those mad guys who loves to play with stuff, with material, and to invent with it. And he's been a very important part of the realization of this project. And he's gonna tell you a little bit about how that uh, process was undertaken with Amanda Levette. Well, good afternoon, everybody. Welcome. Uh, thank you very much, Richard. I'm afraid my, my uh, presentation will be a, a fair bit drier than 
than that. Uh, I'm going to be focused a little bit more on the practical. Um, uh, to start off with, today's discussion is very much about giving heritage to new materials. I want to talk about uh, a lot of different dimensions, uh, both the practical of how you build in new materials, but also I want you to leave with a certain resonance of what composites are for you and perhaps reset that perception. Uh, I want you to have a greater understanding of the core, the heart of manufacturing and composites. I want you to come up and feel the fabric, understand that that tradition of that trade, that craft of weaving, draping it around shape to create strength goes back thousands and thousands of years. I want you to appreciate the complexity and the, the leverage that building and composites offers you. It's not a simple uh, one solution fits all. You'll soon find out that there are many different levers for architects, designers to play with to deliver significant and, and really amazing outcomes. It is a sophisticated solution. Don't believe and don't let people dumb it down and call it plastic or FRP. When they do so, they just show that they don't really understand what exactly they're talking about. Confidence and trust for you to go forward to design, to, to start to think, how can I leverage this unique opportunity, these, these powerful tools that I have in my toolkit? You need to be confident in it. You need to trust um, the material to introduce it to the commercial environment. And I also want to demonstrate to you just how far we are, or rather, how much further we have to go in terms of the, the composites and, and what we can do with it. To do so, heritage, who am I? What the hell am I doing up here? Why should you listen to me? Um, before we started down the path of Molcam and uh, Shapeshift, we were professional yachties for 10 years. I spent um, blasting around the globe having a wonderful time. The only relevance of that is that I think marine and aviation aerospace are still the leaders in terms of pushing high-end composites where load, light, weight, load-bearing members are critical. Everything that we did was about taking weight out. And that's not just with composites, that's with um, alloys, titanium. Everything was about making something stronger, uh, more durable, but, but basically load-bearing. And you'll agree there, I think nowadays planes are made out of what boats used to be made out of, and boats seem to be doing everything they can to, to learn how to fly. Uh, that's a particularly great shot, I think you'll agree. Molchem, uh, 15 years ago, we set up uh, the first large format CNC machine for those who work in composites. We realised that it was the shape, the pattern making that was the, the hard part in, in delivering complex shapes. Uh, Molchem exists around the world now. We are probably the largest in the world in, in that format. Um, large 43 metre machines cutting very complicated wind turbine blades or architectural pieces. Challenge, uh, Richard talked about it, we need to be stretched we always love the challenge. It's always it's in our DNA. This is a good example: a 50-meter Sunseeker that we did in 48 parts as a uh, direct female tool. We built it in Brisbane. We shipped it to Paul. We reassembled it. It was within three millimeters of the design. You can imagine a super yacht cannot have anything unfair. Uh, and we bit and we chewed very hard, and we had a great success. And we learnt an awful lot along the way. Along when things started to get a bit uh, nervous in the world. Uh, we found that the artists were coming to us and they had beautiful vision, uh, complicated shapes and were looking for solutions. How do I build this? Uh, and James Angus was one of the first that, that came to us and in this particular case, which is on the East Link Freeway, the Smarties, uh, this was a given to us as a metal steel construction with cladding. 
Uh, we showed them with 3D and FEA analysis, we could create a monocoque solution, and indeed that's what it is. It's a monolithic monocoque construction, no steel except for the, the pods down here. Um, and we started to get a bit of momentum, but we don't only work in composites, just to show you we're not one single-minded. Uh, that's cast aluminium, uh, that's number one, Bly Street, um, James Angus again. This one, quite nice, I thought, because it, it shows you that the important things about uh, composite engineering is specific specification. We have carbon fibre down in the roots of this particular sculpture, and it feathers out to a very fine weave, which is more at the end of, of, our, of our rack there. So it's not all one thing. Jen Turpin's halo in Sydney, all carbon, spinning on a 10 centimetre bearing. Couldn't do it in any other material. Then the architects, the forward thinkers, those who were looking to challenge and push themselves came to, started to come to us and say, we've got a vision, we're not sure how we're gonna do it, how can you help us, let's collaborate, let's go forward. And we started to change from a CNC technology hardware business to more a collaborator, people that enjoyed working with those who are creative, who like to be pushed, who like to come up with interesting challenges. Uh, the Penrose facade, ARM, in conjunction with RMIT, was uh, one of our first and challenging. Nowadays, this is the Bradman stand in uh, the SCG. Builders, and now also builders, were recognising what they could do with lightweight, strong members. The entire perimeter of the stand is a monocoque uh, construction. It incorporates um, the gutters, it incorporates the suffete, and it was in 12 metre sections. It won the award for innovation for the Master Builders um, Award, and that was largely because it was a safe way of building. Uh, instead of having people 20 metres up in the air, they were able to assemble it in, in 12 metre sections. And now we come to uh, the latest projects around town, McBride, Charles Ryan, and their beautiful facade that we're doing. Again, two years of collaboration. So Shapeshift is really the representative of, of that business, that collaboration, that, that uh, company that likes to be um, working with designers and, and people that, that want to do things differently, but also understanding the need to get it across the line means you need to build it and be able to build it and you need to get it to site and on time and on budget. So our line is bridging creativity and buildability. Molcam still exists. Nine out of 10 projects are still cut with a Molcam machine somewhere in the world. It's integral. It's, it's very much... Um, uh, at the heart, but I think these days it's no longer the head. I think people understand what can be done with large format CNC, everyone designs in 3D, so on and so forth. So it's no, now about it, more about the materials and understanding the materials, that's where the barrier is. So composites, I think we all know, uh, when you say composites, what's the upside? Well, we can, we can make any shape, we can mould it around, and it's got a fantastic strength to weight ratio, I think everyone would agree. I'm gonna talk about a little bit of the other attributes later, but, Let's talk about how you actually build a high quality composite structure. What are the steps? Important thing here, every part of the matrix has an input and a huge leverage. We have to choose the fibre type. What kind of weave, what weight of fabric, what direction is the fibre? We then have to decide how we're gonna manufacture it because there are lots of different ways you could do it and each one has a significant impact. What resin system? When we want to hold that fibre in the load bearing line, what binder are we going to use to hold it there? Is it, is it mud, aligning straw, or is it natural fibre and green carbon resin? The resin ratio is the, is the end product. First step, 
we design in 3D, we get the shape. We analyse the shape. The shape has intricate and intrinsic value. Unlike other materials, the shape gives us a fantastic foundation. We apply the loads, the live loads, the, the maintenance loads, the wind loads, where are the brackets going to be, how often can we have the brackets? What does that structure have to look like? How do we engineer it? And we use the CAD and we use the, the technology that we have in the software to analyse that, to work out where does that fabric, where does that reinforcement have to be? Here we are with the ARM Orbis facade. Naturally a great shape, not bad. We use that, we can see where the, the loads are and uh, I hope you'll have a chance to chat to Adam who's leaning against the pole, our lead engineer, if you have any really technical questions that I can't answer. Once we know the shape, we know where the loads are, then we choose the fabric. And we talked about the history and I really want to emphasise the heritage. When you think of composites, think of weaving. Think of the trade, the craft that goes back centuries because that's all we're talking about. Go and feel the fabric and remember that carbon is just today's 21st century textile. Everything from the cheap and the useless almost to the highly exotic and fantastically strong, we've got the choice. We have choice, we can make it out of chop strand mat if that's appropriate and many of our projects have, have a, a range of, of uh, the very simple to the very advanced. Strength, it has a huge impact. You can see there that if I use carbon, it's five times stronger just in the, in the material that I use, just in the fabric, five times stronger than a chop strand mat. Even the simplest mid-range fabric is four times stronger than what you would probably relate to. What you see when you pick up a, a normal composite part, maybe it's a canoe down at, on the beach when you go um, on your holidays hiring. Once we know what the engineering uh, challenge is, then we can build ply by ply an appropriate solution different fabrics, different weaves along that shape, along those load lines to create um, the best use of that fabric. Where are we going with fabric? Well, you can see we've brought along some, some uh, renewable fabrics, some flax. There's a lot of push in that direction. We've talked about the resin system. The M Pavilion is 40% uh, soybean, a derivative of. Um, so there's huge potential. Take that, take the natural fabric, build a structure, 75% renewable. You have choices. Third big element, manufacturing. Sometimes, however, this is a limiting factor and Adam would have to engineer it to who's going to manufacture and how they're going to manufacture it. If you don't have the technology, if you don't have the skill level, then you don't have the choices. But let's say we have all of the, the choice. This is probably what most people would uh, know in terms of composite manufacturing. Chopper gun the canoes, the, there's the slides in the playground, the really bottom end. It's a filthy process, it's atomised resin, it's fibres getting chopped up and splattered at the subject. Um, there's not really a lot of positive things about that. Um, but it's high production and, and low expectation, let's, let's call it. Then we have a wet layup. Um, much better, still involves human intervention. We're relying on consistency and skill level by the individual to, to get that replicated and that predictable outcome. Um, then you move to something where we're starting to get some real quality, infusion. We lay the fibre in the right positions, in the right stack, and we put a bag over the top and we infuse. We drag the resin through under load and every, there's no chance of voids, there's no chance of of uh, any gaps in the laminate, it's high quality, it's repeatable, it's predictable. 
and then you go to the next step up, which is pre-pregnated resin um, fibre with the resin. It comes in rolls, it's refrigerated, it goes into your mould, it goes into an autoclave in under pressure, under temperature, and, and creates your very top-end aerospace type, type parts. Again, the choice of manufacturing method has a huge impact on, on the end result. What binder, what resin are we going to use? Again, polyester on one end, epoxy on the other. Epoxy three and a half times more ductile than, than polyester, five times stronger. Huge leverage just on and what resin you, you choose. Every input, every string you pull has a significant benefit, a significant impact. I hope you all agree, I hope you have given you a little bit of an insight there into uh, the multi-dimensions, the matrix that makes up high-quality composite manufacture. It is sophisticated. It, it is smart. It's engineered. It's, it's not random. Um, and it delivers, it is a very structured approach. So when people come to me and they say, we're going to build it out of GRP or FRP, I go, well, I don't know what you're talking about because I don't understand what that is. What's the, why would you build something of, in a quality process with quality materials if you could get away with building it out of that chopper gun, splat into the mould, out it pops? What are the benefits? What's the payback? Someone has to, has to buy into it. Someone has to get a, a return on that investment. And I guess these are, are the main ones. Less material waste. If you engineer something and you know it's going to be built in a haphazard, let's call it, way, of course, you have to engineer a far bigger fudge factor into that. You have to consider that and you have to bring it into it. So we just simply, straight off the bat, we waste materials. Lighter, stronger means efficiencies all the way through the build process, all the way to site, the trucks, the cranes, everything coming along. Life cycle, composites have been proven that they are far more durable, they last longer. Um, although there is not a huge amount of evidence in terms of research, there is um, that the problem is the, the composites are still going on. Um, we haven't found the end of, of the lifespan. Accuracy, repeatability, and I think predictability is the word I haven't got up there. That's the key thing. If you're going to build out of this material, you have to be confident. You have to know that it, the next panel is going to be as good as the last panel. It has to be accurate. It has to be the same material properties of the, as the panel that was tested. Um, and quality, I don't care. Across every material uh, means greater um, longevity and reliability. Let me give you a, a, an example. The, the McBride Charles Ryan VCCC, we're doing the, the both facades, but, but let's stay with the top one. Uh, we were given a load case, we were given um, a span, a desired span of 12 metres. Uh, we did it in an 8 mil woven fabric um, and we infused it. 12 metres, it's 380 kilos. It's attached by two brackets. If we did it with Chopstram mat, it would be 35 mils. It would weigh one and a half tonnes and we couldn't do 12 metres. We'd have to do eight metres. We'd lose the span already. So it is about appropriate. And I'm saying there's, there's not a role for chop strand and low quality. Um, and we did a fantastic, a very fun project with Scott Redford, some giant red polar bears. Um, and the appropriate material and the appropriate technology was, was chop strand mat. The wind turbine blades, the 50, the last one we did in Rhode Island, 58 metres, 
to the hub. Uh, composite construction has to be accurate, has to be, you can imagine the speed of those tips as they go around. Um, it has to be strong. It's a very well engineered um, and well built product. And the, the system is an infused system, it's woven fibres, it's uh, vinyl esters or it's epoxies. And what's the equivalent in, in architecture? This is the technology that we're putting on, on the buildings around here. It's not FRP. It's not, it's not uh, a, uh, easily built. It's a very smart, designed, engineered structure. Um, and that's the level of, of technology that, that is appropriate to putting on the sides of buildings or to introduce in the construction industry. The next step up, planes, 380, the A380, the Dreamliner, they're 50% composite. If you didn't know that, um, and you look out your window and the wings, that's, that's uh, what, what they're built out of these days. Um, to, to give you an example of, okay, we, we, are, we are using infusion, we are using uh, mid-range vinyl esters and epoxies. What if we did go to the next step and used uh, carbon? That same panel would, could be 21 metres in span, and it would be a further 15% lighter. It would cost the project 15% more though. In that situation, I can't see the value, to be honest. Uh, you've got to truck it to site. Um, there's only so much you can deal with. But I just wanted to give you an example uh, in, in stages of low quality, um, appropriate, and then how much is still to go. What can we do when we use the technologies that is available, the tools in the toolkit? I think um, the M Pavilion is a great example um, of the way forward. It is a collaborative effort. I think at the moment, composites are being used as a substitute. The original specification will come out with GRC or, or precast or something, and then they'll realise, oh, the slab can't take it, or the, uh, the shape's too complicated, we can't do it, and we will do it in composites. But the cost, uh, the value of that design has already been set. And I can't, I can't uh, make any more value out of a 12 metre span. But if you come to me at the beginning and say, how much, how spectacular would this project be if we had a two, 22 metre span? Well, then we could do something really significant. Then we could start from scratch and engineer something really special, which is how we did this starting from scratch and talking about what the design intent was, what was important, what was not up for discussion. And advanced or forward thinking or risk takers, risk takers, people that like to uh, challenge uh, the norm and, and go forward, artists, architects. Here's another great example. Uh, we're delivering this right now in Perth. Um, Spander is the sculpture. Christian de Vietri is the artist. It's 30 metres high. Uh, the base sections, the first three metres, are basically permanent formwork. They are uh, concrete-filled sections that have the Rio that goes down into the, the, the slab. The next section is woven fibre. The top section is carbon fibre to deliver the, the finesse and the elegance at the top. But it is appropriate in each, each area. Let me talk about the M Pavilion then. Uh, the challenge of this project was not only did we have to use the right materials, but we had to work out how to build it. You can see there are kilometres and kilometres of carbon fibre toe. 
And the first thing we had to do is, is go back to the weaving days and work out how on earth do we loom this design in a, in a, in a time frame, in a budget. Um, the carbon tow was the first hurdle to cross and we realised that we had to put it under tension and the first step was to create that loom that put the, the carbon fibre under tension. The next step was uh, if you go and feel that last roll of fabric, it's a 280 gram uh, woven fibre, uh, very light, and we created a bottom skin using that. We then laminated or, or flooded the carbon fibre with a, a resin pool and then we put a top skin over the top. The first time we did that and we didn't put the, uh, the flooding of the resin in, they flopped as a complete failure. We added structure, we added more fibre and we lost the translucency. And we thought we were done, that was it, we had no solution. And then we played with the idea of creating load-bearing skins with a core and then another load-bearing skin, a monocoque structure um, and we tried that and that's where we hit pay dirt. But that took us quite a long time, but it was great fun um, and great, we had great support and we ended up achieving the result. The, the backbones are made of this first material here. It's a, a straight carbon fibre. It was infused. We couldn't get the shape into it without infusing it. We couldn't get the amount of carbon we needed to into that shape without infusing it. So, again, uh, to, to reiterate the... The, the level of inputs and the level of strings that you have to play gives you leverage and can create an amazing array of, of outcomes. To give you confidence, um, we have realised that th these elements are the critical nature. We've moved forward and we've wrapped it all up and we've called it Shapeshell. Because there is a lot of variables and we want you to believe and we want to see the use of composites more and more in the architectural and design world. Shapeshell has all of the qualities that we've talked about, all of those, those uh, appropriate fibres, resin types, build solutions, testing, certification, manufacturing. We know we can build it in any shape, 46, 406 different shapes, all CNC cut, monocoque construction. I like this slide, not so much for the, for, this is a testing rig of uh, one of the panels of Swanston Square. This is the test result. I'm not a particularly a, a numbers engineer, but the idea of the test was to take the panel to destruction. Um, and when we got to 6.4, the test rig started to shake and uh, we basically broke the test rig before we broke the panel. Um, but that's the equivalent of, what did you call it, Adam? Two cyclones, equivalent of two cyclones, and it showed no signs of damage, no signs of fatigue, no signs of, of cosmetic variation. So, Australian State Fire is, is a very hot topic at the moment. Uh, it's not um, a topic that, that deserves to be treated in an irrational and irrational manner. There are products, there are ways around fire in terms of protecting yourself. Our products are to the appropriate standard and last night in our UK facility we did a three-storey high full facade test to the new standards, the, the draft standards that are out now that will be adopted for 2016, we are proactive in making sure that you have the right, you have the confidence that you know that the product has been correctly engineered all the way through and with the right responsible um, reactions. Uh, most of you know that the good things, but there are some other things, 25 years, now you can get a surface finish that is 25 years gloss retention. We've put it in the accelerometer, we have 
compared to what other people might be, you might be confident, the Aluka bonds, you can get a remarkable, you can get a product now that you can post-apply that will last and not fade for 25 years. Um, inert, it doesn't create, doesn't react. Uh, it's got a lower coefficient of expansion than, than most other products. So where are we? We've, we've talked some very technical stuff. We talked some very dry, boring uh, insta um, manufacturing techniques. But really, the, the goal is to understand that if you start, if you begin the design process, the creative process, with the toolkit of composites and advanced manufacturing techniques, then this is where we're playing here, in the middle, at the bottom of the curve. We have only just begun. That panel that you saw that was tested to two cyclones, it wasn't even using the best we got. So the potential to turn that 12 metre span into a 22 metre span, to create spaces and structures that are defining and unique and incredibly special. They deserve to be part of your, your design, your toolkit, because I think the future, the technology, the Australian know-how, the Australian desire to, to collaborate and to explore and to be challenged is very much, um, is very much there. And hopefully with the confidence that you have from the experience that we can bring, you'll, you'll, uh, you'll take that and you'll run. I've talked for far too long. Um, thank you for staying awake. We'd like the opportunity to, we've got some uh, Adam engineer, we've got Richard here. Uh, we've got lots of very um, well-educated designers here. Other, we'd like to open the floor up to some questions. If I can't answer it, I'm gonna definitely give it to Richard. So, has anyone got any questions? Where's the bar? The bar's over there. Beer, wine. Great. Well, um, look, on behalf of, of M Pavilion and uh, Shapeshift, I really appreciate you coming down. I know it's a terrible place to tear yourself away on at 4.30 in the afternoon. I do hope you'll join us for a glass of wine or a beer. Um, I hope you've got something out of it. It is quite a complicated subject, um, but hopefully the, the, the examples there will give you a little bit of a, of a sense of, of what's, what's around. Come and play with the fabric. If you come from a practice um, and you think that uh, your colleagues would benefit from, from us coming and talking, we'd love to. Obviously, uh, we encourage, we want to see more involvement, we want to see more collaboration, we'd love to see more advanced materials being used in construction and design, and we'd, we'd love to spend the time to come and meet with your team and to maybe talk a little bit more intimately about uh, what the barriers are and, and, and where your concerns or, or limitations are. So, thank you for... Oh, I've got a question, fantastic. I think, um, thank you, so, so the element of recyclability, of, of sustainability, of um, I think it's in, in two directions, definitely the materials, uh, we, there is definitely a push for using re, um, green materials such as, as flax and hemp as, as fibre, in terms of resin, um, certain European com companies are pushing very hard and 40% green carbon in, in a resin system is very good. I think life cycle, uh, the thing about composite is you, you use a fraction of, and the life cycle when they measure the trucks going to site and all of the inputs, the manufacturing 
I mean, concrete is not a particularly green material, um, the, the energy that it consumes in its manufacture. The other dimension of uh, what we haven't touched on because we just don't have time is, is the core material, what, what goes in the middle to, in this case, it was just straight resin, but in, in a panel, where are those? Oh, we're going to throw around some samples to give you an idea. Let's pass those around now, Rich. Um, in that panel is a core. Uh, the distance that the skins are apart is like an I-beam. It gives it the strength. We are using now recycled plastic bottles as, as the core. So there is a push on. I think, however, a holistic view in terms of the total life cycle is the best way to, to view it. Um, because what we can do in a fraction of material takes tons and tons and tons of concrete or GRC or more traditional materials. Has that inspired other questions? No. Please, um, these are two examples. Surface finish we haven't touched on, important in design. Uh, we've got two extremes there. We've got a, a high gloss finish and also we've got a cementaceous finish. Um, Bash your hand against the cementaceous. Feel it. Does it feel weak? Does it feel plastic? It doesn't. So you really have an equal amount of choice when it comes to, to surface finish. And as, as Richard mentioned, just because you coat the material doesn't mean that we're hiding what it really is. And I don't think uh, in the future perhaps we'll see the actual weave and the pattern of composites being, being comfortable to be exposed. That's all I have. Thank you very much again. I hope you'll stay uh, for at least a, a, a quick drink. Um, and my contact details, shapeshift.tech or molcam.com. Um, please give us a call. We'd love to, to hear from you. Thank you.